I'm learning a ton and enjoying it a lot. So reading books uh, about investment pitching and stuff. Didn't <laughs> you send of, me a book on investment pitching too? You sent me one. I sent, I sent you a, uh, uh, just some, the full screen. Yeah. What, what's it? What was it called? It was called, um, pitch anything. And it's kind of a modern book on rhetoric in business, but that's not what he calls it. It, it's a book about, uh, uh, how, how it is that people think about taking risks and how, how to basically talk about risk in a modern business setting, uh, or how to, how to frame relationships to help people, um, feel, not feel simple risk, but understand reward and risk and the relationship between the two. It was really, I mean, a super interesting book and, um, it, it, he's got a whole thing about frame, uh, what does he call it? Frame, frame, social framing. Um, mm. but it's basically, who does, how do you decide which of you is the, um, expert in the scenario? Which of you should be the one leading a conversation? Uh, and it's the, it comes down to sort of how the, how the two social frames come into contact and which one eats up the other. So which one has a social frame that can subsume both of you and which one has a social frame, um, that that is, uh, you know, the smaller of the two. And that, that stuff I found fascinating. What? It, Are so you serious? It, like that's inside yeah. of a, that's inside this selling book <laughs> inside this. Yeah. And I'm sitting there thinking like, this is the frame narrative stuff. And that's what I sent you. I said, dude, I think it was chapter two. It was like chapter two is all the stuff we've been talking about with, um, with frame narrative. And he basically comes in and he says, how do you, how do you know and communicate your frame uh, in a social set setting? And it's, it's kind of a how to book, um, but it was really, really interesting. Um, you know, so and he talks I, a, bu I, a bunch about the importance of just humor and joviality, uh, magnanimity, which those aren't, those aren't the words he uses, but that's, those are the words that Aristotle uses when talking about the same thing, you know? So, um, you know, uh, that there's this, uh, this way of interacting in which you go in saying, Hey, we can both win here, right? Magnanimity. Um, and the way that you communicate that is joviality, um, with, by just having a, a, a lighter, less cynical framework that, um, you know, that even if we're, even if we're work, even if we're at odds, we, we don't have to be enemies, that kind of mentality. Um, hmm. and he said, that's how you have a, a larger framework, you know, a larger frame narrative than, than the person in front of you. Um, if the person in front of you only can see like this particular conflict in this moment or, the, or that with that, we're trying to defeat one another in this situation or something. Um, he said, there's a way to, uh, he, he said the, the alpha is basically the one with the most, with the largest frame narrative that can fit this all into to a jovial context and it was really interesting stuff that's a lot like of stuff right about where we've been at yeah that's just right where we've been <laughs> living at well, and a, talking about it, 
Right. And what's so interesting is, you know, he, he's, he tries to ground it in like evolutionary brain science. Um, (laughs) but it's really, you can tell that it's stuff he's experienced and then he's trying to backfill. How can I explain this in a scientific sounding way so that people will believe me because science is the authority in our day? Um, brain science is so new. We know so little. Com- I mean, the only thing we probably know less about than the brain is the intestines. Ocean. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's funny is you, you know, the part of the thing that, um, I've, since I've started reading Lewis, which by the way, Lewis, in the world that I grew up in, kind of first you got the charismatic world that wasn't really involved in Lewis, but then I and I moved into the more kind of Reformed Baptist um, kind of world, uh, Christian Missionary Alliance. I gotta say they loved Lewis, like mere Christianity loved Lewis. Yeah. But then that more Reformed side of it wasn't really a huge fan of Lewis. But the more that I've come come to understand and really read Lewis, he makes so much sense of the world that it's made me understand that. Christianity is the only way to see the world in which that uh, we actually have space for people who aren't Christian. I guess it's there's no other way right. to see the world. Otherwise, <clears throat> we look like Islam, but right? you know that's the, or we look um, like the social justice movement is looking right now. Right, 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 or or the, the, current that conform or else. Uh, right. Yeah. But but Christianity is the only way to see the world where we have, like you said, that overarching narrative of how the world really is made and how it operates um, and how in one sense or another it is uh, – I, I don't want to use the word inclusive because I don't want it to be taken out of context, but inclusive, right, where we can actually – because here's one thing. I, I, right now we're having a conversation in, in politics on – is there a place for us in the world, in this new world that's being created by social justice movement, by the right. new world order? Like every no one's even acting like that stuff doesn't exist anymore. We all know that it's happening and we know there's a recreation of the world that's happening right in front of us. Everybody knows that. Right. And the question that everybody is asking is who's out and who's in and who's right. in charge. Right. Because it's like this new covenant that's being made with people. Right. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> And um and right now people are fighting over like well if they get it we're out we're not in um but I I don't think that we've made a compelling argument that Christianity is the only way to see the world in which people who are not Christians get to still live in this world in 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 relationship with other human beings without feeling like that they are um out you know what I mean or second class citizens in some way right um or not even citizens at all the way that's going right well because because non if you don't have a christian view of the cosmos then you end up like mao killing millions of people because you've got you have to build um you have to basically cut out the parts of the world that don't conform um, mm, because it's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because there's not a spot for them because you know, you've got to, if God is not in control and um, then you have to be, 
So you have to, and the, the parts that won't come under your control, you have to either, um, you know, coerce into your power or you have to manipulate into your power or you have to get rid of, right? And, um, you know, this is why you've got the mass murders of the 20th century. Uh, I mean, you've got a whole list of mass murderers that, for whatever reason, people just don't even talk about anymore. Um, it, we're, we, we think, well, we're, we're so much more, um, you know, we're so much further along. We would never, <laughs> we would never do that or we would never commit these sort of mass murders. We still, we, we remember Hitler for some, for some reason, but we have a hard time remembering Stalin and Mao, um, Pol Pot, the, the other, mass murderers every single one of them it was about saying this world is out of control unless somebody applies enough force and i'm going to be the one that does it and so they use the centralized government to apply enough force to keep the world in control but it's that it's not the kind of world that we can control i mean ecclesiastes is all about that it's Mm. out of our control we have limitations and the embrace of our limitations um, is a joy in a Christian worldview, in a Christian understanding for Christians to say, you know what? I've got my limitations. I don't have to be God. There's already a God on the throne. And so I get to actually just live my little life, enjoy it, love the people God puts in front of me. And I don't have to be in control. And this is goes, you know, it goes all the way up on the political side, but then we do it on the, on the, on our, you know, in, in our families, anytime you feel like I've got to manipulate my spouse into doing this thing, you know, whether it's, um, <laughs> you know, it's guilt manipulation, emotional manipulation, um, fear tactics, whatever it is, we are, we are basically saying, um, I've got to control this place because I, I can't get the blessings unless I'm in control. God says it's the other way around. He's in control. Be faithful to me. You know, come trust me. And, uh, the blessings flow out of that. We don't, ha- we don't coerce our way into blessings. You know, we, we obey and enjoy our way into blessings. I know we're supposed to be talking about Dante because I'll get there, but I have to. Yeah, okay. So this is, this is me going to vent a little bit about just, so I, I I am um I'm looking around my house and and I'm seeing things that aren't like gratuitous. There's nothing that's wrong, like really big things that are out of place. I'm just seeing little things that I'm like, yeah. Didn't I tell my kids to do this? Like I know I told them to do this. I know I told them to do this thing. They're not doing this thing, and I'm finding that um it's everywhere like you know um shoes aren't put where they're supposed to be put and they're just somewhere in the living room i I told you to put your shoes away you're not going to find them later um you know and there's just there's just little things that clean up they don't clean up where they're supposed to i come back and it's like halfway done and it's moving on (laughs) you know and i'm finding these little things and it's starting to hit me in, in a in a very real way that these are I'm I'm bringing this up to the point that you're saying about trying to control right so I'm looking at these and I'm like man 
Um, these are little foxes, little things of just simple obedience that I'm seeing that I'm like, this is not, they're not obeying right away, right. all the way with a good attitude every day. Right. And so I'm looking at this and I'm like, I got a problem here. And I think before I would have looked at that and been like, I need to tighten down the hatch. Right. I need to, we're going to screw this thing down. We're going to get it. Right. Like, I'm going to be on top of everybody making a mistake, you know, and, and it hit me, you know, this has been a, a something in the work that there is a problem with me being a good Lord of my home, right? Like there is something that I am missing and not communicating well in the love of obedience, in the joy of obedience and the fruit of obedience right? so that my kids are finding more pleasure in obeying all the way than they would be in just going through the motions and halfway getting it done. And so I'm, I'm realizing that there is a relationship thing that I am missing in communicating with my kids about the type of house that we have, about the type of relationship that we have and about the type of responsibilities that we have to maintain or to continue in that fruitful relationship. And so I didn't, I look at them and I'm, and I, it's, it hit me that I am the person responsible for that. And it seems so simple, like, oh, these are just shoes on the floor. Or this is just not wiping down the counter or this isn't just sweeping the floor after you, do. you know what your duties are, but there's something that I have failed to communicate well and joyfully in my home that has the fruit of that kind of communication to my kids that they interact with the rest of everything else in the house that way. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. We, the, and, and when we look at ourselves, we know how easy it is to get distracted, to slip out of the little habits. And you guys just moved too, right? So yeah. There's right. A whole yeah. Another, we just moved into like, a whole new whole, house. A whole nother layer. The liturgy of, isn't there yet. <laughs> yeah. Of, of new sets of habits, new everything. Um, and, and I, but I also think, like, if if you're you're trying to build into the habits a particular way of thinking about their own motivations as well, and that's where, you know, trying to try, try you want the the smile of their mother to be more motivating. For yeah. them than anything else, right? Like just the, right. the joy they bring their mom when they, when the, she walks in and sees all the shoes in line. You want that to be such a deep motivation that when they forget to put their shoes down, it's not like, ah, oh, dad's asking me to put the shoes away. It's like, oh man, just you're right. Thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You, the, oh, and the, the, uh, the, the teach train, Enforce of us of you know of, of spanking um, is good for the sorts of things that cause pain in your life down the road, right? You want the you want reality um, to be you you want your home to reflect reflect reality, and there are certain things that if you live that way out in the world, there's long term pain, and you want short, quick teaching pain in your home that teaches them about the long-term pain. Um, but the beauty of fellowship, the beauty of a smiling, excuse me, of a smiling mom, the beauty of 
uh, of a a household that's clean and well ordered and and a, a place where you can actually enjoy one another is actually the the long term goal because that's what they're going to take with them. You want them to go out and establish a house that starts there and then builds on it, right? So the, it starts with the expectation of fellowship because they have enjoyed it. Um, I mean, th- this is one of the things that's so hard um, for a lot of folks is they've lived out of fellowship for so long that it feels normal, mm. right? Mm. They, and they've, they've lived in the, the mess, the personal mess so long wow. that it feels normal. Um, but it's, it's not right. It's, it's the, it's like having a zombie wander around the house constantly, right? If it's there long enough, you get used to it, but, but it's not supposed to be there. Right. Um, and, uh, but that's the living out of fellowship part. And the only way back into fellowship is, is forgiveness. Right. And, um, because sin is the thing that breaks fellowship and forgiveness is the thing that overcomes it. And, that's a that's something you can only you can only become a forgiving person because you have stopped looking at other people and start looking at what God has done for you right you when you start responding to God's grace to you by extending that forgiveness outwards that's the only way back into fellowship that's a hard transition to make because fellowship feels terrifying when you've been <laughs> in a self-protective mode because of sin for so long right fellowship right, right, is right, right is a horrifying thing. And it's what's so hard. I've seen this a lot of times, right? Folks join the church. They, they love, a, they love their church. They're starting to get close to people. They get close enough and they're in fellowship enough that they start sharing things about themselves and their story. They have lived in situations where their weaknesses and their imperfections, their sins, their past failures are used against them. And as soon as they start sharing their past with people, they start feeling unsafe in the church and they start accusing the church of not being a safe place anymore because now they don't feel safe. And it really isn't because anything in the church has changed. It's because they don't know how to live in a community where people know you because they've always lived in coercive and coercive and, uh, manipulative relationships. Why are you talking so, about me? Why, why you just, just say not. We just, no, you're right about that. You're right. No, you, you are and, and in the place where people use those things against you when it's time. Right. Yeah. And it's, and that's happened to That's happened to me, right? Like people, um, learn my past. They, and then, you know, you're in the middle of a situation and you say something and they're like, well, but you were, you did this before so you can't possibly um give good advice in this situation right and <laughs> think okay that's the kind of person you are right you're gonna you 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 know enough about my past to learn to think you can control me um i don't respond to that well i've listened to too much rage against the machine and i'm like thou shalt not manipulate <laughs> me that is the <laughs> <laughs> I, and there's a, there's a very, that's, there's, I have a lot of patience for a lot of things, but when somebody tries to, to use, and it's something I've trained my kids to do when my daughter 
um, was 10, maybe 11 at one point. I, she had done something and I said something that she immediately identified that I was being a manipulative dad. I was using guilt manipulation. And she said, Dad, you have trained me to not respond to guilt manipulation, so I can't do what you're asking. <laughs> and that was like my little 11-year-old called me on the carpet. And I was like, honey, you're right. That I'm gonna tell you was something. guilt manipulation. Please forgive me. It's like, I, I forgive you. I okay, now that yeah. I've forgiven you, now that you've forgiven me, let me uh, tell you again without the guilt manipulation what you need to do. Right? Because <laughs> I was in a position of authority. But... She, I had trained her to identify and reject guilt manipulation. And so even when I went to use it, she was like, nope, that's, and so it was, and, uh, um, and then that's what you want, right? Cause we're not, parents aren't, we don't, we're not in charge because we're perfect, right? So you want to train your kids. <laughs> I'm going to tell you something, Jason. I've survived long enough for mama's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tell you, there would be no knocks. It would be just you're done, son. Like, what did you? Ow! Yeah, that would have been on the ground, bro. Like, so like, even but, my my but, kids would do that now. I might even still have that reflex. I'm trying to stop it. Right, right? Yeah. Like, what? You, what? Well, yeah. One of the things that education does is it it puts uh it puts space between your uh um your <laughs> your actions and your reactions you know <laughs> yeah do you think do you do you think um so one of the things that i i um i want to talk about this i'll probably talk about it more across politics but um i know you don't have a whole lot of time and i don't want to waste your time but i just there's uh there's a so much i i've tried my best not to talk to you until we do a show but we've been talking a lot this week <laughs> and so there's so much here so i want to talk about dante i want to talk about allegory this, this is interesting and so i'm the introduction, bro. Okay, I was looking through translations for Dante, and you told me to get the Dorothy Sayers version. Now, yeah. I think you told me to get the Dorothy Sayers version because, from what I understand, according to I just got all the books here, a beginner's guide to Dante's Divine Comedy. Oh, that one's glorious. Can we talk to this dude? Yeah, he's we, done. We C.S. absolutely Lewis. can. Can we get him on the show? He doesn't even have a Twitter, bro. Jason I, M. I, Baxter. He, I know. I tried to find him on Twitter to say thank you and couldn't. But I'll I'll start hunting. I'll be able to. I'll find him. Let's, Let's have get him on, him on the I, show. I want to talk to so him. So good. His book is so good. Um, and I I just he he I've I've this is my I've just ordered a, a whole stack of all of his books except for his he he wrote a dictionary I think it's a dictionary for of Dante right so that you like a so that you could have something sitting there with you. I couldn't afford it. It was like 60 bucks or something. So go in on it. (laughs) Uh, I totally go in on it. I was thinking of just, I mean, I've just used up this month's book budget. I'll send you a link. My wife see this. (laughs) But I think, I think the reason that you, I got to hide this show from my wife. I think the reason that you wanted me to pick up Dorothy Sayers version of a translation of Dante was because as I was reading Baxter, he says, Dorothy Sayers was the last person to try and translate uh, Dante with his own rhythmic yep. pacing. Um, and so the poetry there, man, it's really brilliant the way he talks about. OK, I wish I can find this part, but it's brilliant the way he talks about Dante's uh, poem in the sense that Dante creates 
this other universe for the poetry to live in that you don't even know is going on, but it's happening and you're experiencing one thing. It's it's what poetry is supposed to do. It holds multiple right. things up at one time and makes you look at it. And there's one main thing, but then it's this whole nother universe going on around the outside of it. And you don't even know until you stop and start breaking it down in a scientific way. And so is that the reason you wanted me to pick up Dorothy Sayers' yeah. version of this? So, so her her poetry still sounds the way the poetry should. It's got the rhythms. It's got the rhyme scheme. And most people don't do it because English is so – English, the way – English has a Germanic grammar system. Italian has an, a Latin or romantic grammar system. And so it's easy to rhyme in Latin because the grammar system is all added to the end of the words. And so lots and lots of words rhyme. Our grammar system doesn't function like that. It's a word order grammar system. And so it's much harder to rhyme in English. Dorothy Sayers said, but I'm going to keep the rhyme scheme anyway. Right. So the rhythm and the rhyme scheme, um, and which is really, really hard, which is why it took her so long. And she didn't quite finish. Somebody finished up the parody. So for her after she died, but, um, but it, it's because it's hard, but she's brilliant, brilliant poet. She under And then the other thing is her notes explaining at the end, assume a modern that doesn't know the world of Dante. Right. So her notes are not academic. <clears throat> her notes are reader's oh, notes. Praise God. So, <laughs> and they're at the end. Of, and they're, they're at the end of each chapter. So they're easy to. Is that Sayers so, notes? So those are Sayers personal notes right and so that but they're oh. but i love that she wrote she wrote readers notes to help you understand assuming it was people that didn't have a classical education so they're oh, so that's talking about me yeah so that's why i really love this version uh, and why i recommend it is because of the notes if you get something and you're like i don't quite get it you can just flip to the end of the chapter and it tells you the line number of the note that explains everything. Sometimes there is something where it's, it was, it was common knowledge in the sixties and it's not anymore. And so there are times when you still do yeah. have to look stuff up, but for the most part, she wrote, she, she created a reader's copy, um, for people in her day to be able to pick Dante up and read it without having to have a, uh, a huge dictionary around. If you can ever make it past the introduction of this one, my <laughs> goodness, from Penguin Classics, the yeah. introduction was enough. Like it's huge. So when you were in New York uh, a couple weeks ago, yeah, Eric Metaxas, I think you were out there doing his show, and you were around tour in New York, and uh, I said, so how, how you doing, man? He's like, hey, I got my copy of Dante, and I'm taking pictures next in Dante's part. I think it was. Right? Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah so I was they like. So I was in the Italian district and so visiting, um, and the, so the parks are named after famous Italian poets and musicians. And so I went and, uh, you know, <laughs> went to Dante's park, uh, straight away because I've always wanted to visit and, uh, pulled out my copy of Dante and took a picture of myself with my copy of Dante in front of the statue of Dante in Dante Park. Because now what I didn't. <laughs> Because it's what? Because it's Dante Park, right? It's so no, and none of the New Yorkers even knew it was there. It's like you know, it was sad to me. But yeah, so did you find hell there? I'm just wondering. 
Um, no, man, I loved New York. Maybe the subway system would count as something, but I loved the subway, honestly. Was, I mean, you could was walk Dante's around New York is, and hear like nine languages in one day. It was amazing. Oh, I, it's, it's a glow. I miss, I do miss that about cities. Minneapolis is the same way. You know, in the city, you can find multiple languages just walking, but New York is absolutely, yeah. Um, but was Dante's Park built like, um, you know, the first book, Hell, was it, it has spiral that went down and they just called Dante. Was there anything that resembled Dante in Dante's no, it's, Park? It's just like a big triangular spot with a bunch of people sitting, you know, with, with like tables and, and trees and everything right in the middle of Manhattan. Um, so they're just. What's the point of calling it, it Dante's Park if it's not going to be like Dante? Well, because it was, that whole area was founded by Italians. And so they've got. A, um, they should know better. To, yeah, they probably should. But I think the goal is how do we remember our own poetic and musical history as we combine, you know, come into this culture, right? And so they're trying to set up memorials. Um, and. Which is more of a reason, though, to say, like, okay, you have a name that isn't connected to the art itself. If you want to remember your own culture, don't you have to have the art a part of the name so that people can say, this is us, right? Yeah. That's a disconnect. Probably. Probably. Although he wrote a lot besides the comedia. But so. there, is there anything more popular than this? <laughs> no, there is. Absolute, it's an absolute masterpiece, Mio. Maybe the greatest. So, so arguably what I didn't know, the greatest poem outside of scriptures. So what I didn't know about you was that you actually carry a copy of Dante almost everywhere you go. It's in your bag. Yeah. So like yep. Beyonce has hot sauce in her bag, you got Dante. <laughs> yeah. Basically, yeah, I'd carry Dante with me everywhere. Oh, uh, so. <laughs> why it, well because i uh it, it's the way it it's like you're walking in a you live in a fog but there's somebody that says let me tell you here's a map of reality but the it's been sort of fogged out you can't it isn't impressed onto my imagination um but it was impressed onto the imagination of dante and so i'm constantly working with Dante to see my imagination reformed according to reality or re-sculptured or, I mean, I, I like to think of the imagination as, you know, it's, it's like a park. Um, it's, it's the, it's the park that you, that you live in. And, um, a lot of the aspects of the modern imagination have been, they've let it grow over and then, it has turned into a desert because that's actually what happens when you don't, when you, if you have a jungle, just historically speaking, if you have a huge, if you have a, an area and you come in and you um, clear it out, you build a farm and then you let it overgrow, it eventually will turn into a desert. Right. And, and that's what happened to them, to the modern Im- imagination. We have very thin imaginations. Um, you know, you listen to, something like NPR and you've got a show called all things considered and all they ever talk about is politics, sometimes economics, but mostly politics because they're considering all things. Right. And, but we have an imagination that has been thinned down to power structures. Everything is a power structure. And um, that's all that we believe 
the world is. So it's chaos and power structures. So, but, um, Dante is really at, he, he is a high point in the imaginative construction of, uh, or the, in embracing reality and letting reality form your, the constructs of your imagination so that you can actually see reality and, and enjoy it. Um, and so I'm just constantly working through Dante. Um, so did, did the, do you think the West ever had a Dantean? Can you say that? Don, Don, Dantean, Dantanian, maybe. Dantanian. Um, and I guess part of it is like, when you say imagination, I guess I'm trying to figure out like, what do you mean by imagination? Because, um, it, you can easily say, well, I imagine unicorns and flying horses and, you know, that's my imagination. But when you say imagination, what are you talking about? Um, I mean, what I'm talking about is like when Paul, uh, Paul says, um, it's, it's in, it's in first Corinthians that I, uh, is it first Corinthians? Where is it? First Corinthians nine or, um, we were, we were just talking about it. Um, it's the section that, that we usually. Oh, first Corinthians 10. First Corinthians 10. Yeah. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God yeah. for the pulling down of strongholds, casting there down imaginations go. and every high thing that exalts itself to the knowledge. Of- See, I don't have that photograph and make me like you, but some things I can remember. <laughs> I was off by a chapter. Um, yeah. so the, uh, and he's, he's trying to, uh, he's, he says that when the gospel comes, that it, it didn't come as a new set of rules. But it came as an imagination forming, um, it, it, it reformed us at our deepest level until we, it reformed it towards Christ, right? So it says mm. he casts down all of the false imaginations, um, until it is, our imagination is reformed towards Christ. So what we actually end up with is a, um, is a, a, a f- well-formed or a newly formed, re-informed, uh, reformed understanding, um, that in which the way the world is built by God seems normal. And so our gut reaction can be formed such that we respond in the way that God wants us to, we respond towards Christ. And that's something that, yeah, go ahead. Well, that, Um, and and that's something that I think what we want to do is say, um, we want to say, do this, do that. You don't have to know, understand anything, just obey and you'll be blessed. Um, but we don't ever want our, our gut reactions um, to be formed um, towards Christ. But that's what Paul says, right? Because the, the Pharisees and the, the Judaizers came in with a set of rules that said, we can reform you. Here's the set of rules. 
And Paul says, you know, I never worked that way. We brought every thought captive um, to the obedience of Christ. And uh, your obedience was full, right? It was your obedience was from the heart. Um, you, He says he always wanted us to follow Christ heartily or with our whole heart. Um, the the in whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving mm-hmm. thanks to God the Father through Him. Right? That that it's something that everything we do, it flows from the deepest part of us a uh, a desire to serve God, and that that is actually um, what the preaching of the gospel does. It forms us all the way down to the to the bottom. Um, and then our actions that flow out of it come from a reformed will, not a coerced will. Now, our will, um, discipline does coerce our will into doing the right thing. Uh, right, like so saying my kids, yeah. Right, exactly. And God does act that way, but he acts that way towards a full obedience, right? So towards a an imagination um, that responds to reality um and sees that it's to christ for christ through christ uh everywhere so does that make sense yeah but i don't think that i think as i'm thinking about it i think as i think you got me all (laughs) self-conscious i don't even want to talk a certain i have to be comfortable because sometimes you make me nervous uh especially (laughs) when you start telling me like you got to start reading dictionaries you know that that really messed up my world. Just want you to yeah. know that. You tell me, he's like, what did you tell me? I gotta find this. Where's my? I don't have my phone. Oh yeah, I'm gonna find it. I found my messages. Here it goes. Um, we're no, nah, we're gonna do this. I'm gonna come back to that point in a second. But hold on. Um, oh, where's the message? I'm gonna find it. I asked you something about reading dictionaries. Oh, and I gotta read your exact quote. Nobody ever takes me seriously when I say stuff like this. I I have this has been fun. There it goes. Okay. <clears throat> um I asked you I said <clears throat> I sent you a bunch of uh Instagram stuff for you to laugh at too, by the way. <laughs> I don't know if you ever looked at that. Oh, I did. I just wasn't going to watch yeah. any of the LA airport. <laughs> So why do I need to be reading a dictionary and how do I do it? Uh, is there a process? I did not say that at all. That's what I tried to communicate. What I wrote was, <laughs> why do I need to be, be reading a dictionary and how do I do it? I there a process. Oh, my goodness. How do you tolerate me? Uh, and, <laughs> and then you said just landed in L.A. No, that's not the right one. Uh, you live in a world made of words. You think in words, which really messed me up because I was like, oh, my goodness, if I'm thinking in words, that means that even my thinking is limited because I don't have enough words to think through things well. Right. So, but even your thinking, you think in words, the use of words to create, form and feel is central to what it means to be made in the image of God. Vocabulary is power. Vocabulary is the limit of our dominion. Head went. So, I wish I wish I would have known that 25 years ago. How much I needed to use and where. I mean, I you get a vocabulary, you figure it out, and then you what you do is you start shifting words around 
to be able to try and communicate something, but then you you're only shifting things around as your knowledge is growing. You're only shifting the words around trying to explain that instead of your vocabulary growing with your knowledge, right? And you're right, hoping that's right. happening, but it's it's not always, and so it limits you and your ability to be able to think broadly because you don't have the words or the categories even to think that wide, right? You know, and so um, I did want to ask you. You said I said, well, how do you do it? And you said pick a letter. Um, Q, read the definition of the words that you don't know, and then note the connections you start to see. What do you mean by note the connections you start to see? Well, so you start to realize the that vocabulary is more of an interconnected web than a series of just straight definitions, um, uh, and and so a a, a dictionary is is um it's it's an observation uh of how things are used how words are used but there is the source of a word there's the use of a word and then there's the um kind of the the implications that a word brings with it and so it's kind of a web of meaning um and the i mean even that this passage we were just looking at you know, for example, he says, uh, you, um, I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with the confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some, which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh, right? And he's been talking about the, um, the Judaizers that are coming in with laws and rules. And, and he says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Well, he's he says flesh, flesh, carnal. When you know that carnal comes from the from the word carne, which means meat or flesh, um, you know that he's saying we so we walk in the flesh, right? We walk in our bodies in the meat in this meat sack, but the meat sack is not the way controlling the meat sack is not the way that you win this war. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not focused on the body, but instead they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing captivity, every thought. Now, he said, we, we tear down certain thoughts, right? In uh, certain, in our imagination, and we bring into captivity every thought in our imagination towards the obedience of Christ, right? So he's actually laying down. He, he, so he's saying the, you don't get to, you, it's, this is not an outward inward motion. It's an inward outward motion. You move from our, because of what's in our imagination, um, we mm. end up doing, doing the things that we end up doing. And he says, we actually, the gospel that we preach pierces all the way to the reformation of the imagination. And that then the, our imagination is towards the obedience of Christ, right? So it's towards obeying what God calls us to do. Um, it's not, uh, but there's a, you can have an imagination that's against the obedience of Christ that 
what God calls us to do doesn't give you, it goes against your gut. And we've all experienced this, right? I mean, I know when I was, um, as I was coming into the church and as a new Christian, there were all sorts of things about being a Christian that felt wrong because my imagination had, uh, was formed into a different setting than reality. My imagination was deformed. But the more I read the scriptures, the more I spent time with Christians, the more I read church history, the more I read poetry, um, you know, contemplated the great Christian artists, uh, musicians, the more I saw my imagination reformed according to reality to where obeying Christ started to seem normal, to seem the, um, to, to feel right, not just um, be right according to kind of truth that was separated from my desires, right? So, um, and Augustine calls it the reformation of our desires, right? where the, our, or the re, I mean, not the reformation, the reordering of our desires. So our desires become disordered by sin and then by growing up apart from the word of God, apart, you know, and, uh, but, uh, our desires are reordered into the right order by the scriptures, by worship, by um, the arts, by poetry, by good, good, true, right poetry. And so, um, and this, and Dante, you know, he talks about, this, I mean, this is what, this is why Virgil shows up to guide Dante through hell, right? why a poet shows up to guide him through hell, because Virgil has done so much to form his imagination. Um, mm. it, it can only take him so far before something else has to take over, but Virgil has formed his imagination towards the obedience of Christ because he's been reading Virgil in a Christian context. Um, and the beauty and the high goodness of Virgil pointed him to the fact that there had to be a truth that made sense of the beauty and the goodness. Is right. this, is this, is this why we need Christian art in public squares? Absolutely. So, yeah. Cause we don't have any right now. Can you think of any Christian art publicly? Like that's in, in America that has this guess, kind of imaginative. Yeah. I guess in America, I'm thinking of an America right now that has this kind of biblical imagination that is helping form culture about the kind well, of world I that mean, we live in. I think like the early Pixar movies, there were some, a lot of Christians involved in that, uh, in that early kind of golden age Pixar. Um, and they did, they have a positive formational effect, uh, on the imagination. I, I only think I, you know, we but, were talking about this a little bit earlier. Go ahead. But it's, it is, it's so hard to come up with much. I mean, in, in Europe, you can, you've got, you've still got the cathedrals there. You've still got the public art from the previous age, but does we don't matter really have because, that. I, I guess in one sense, does that matter if nobody knows what it means or are those the kind of things that, because the, the erosion around, um, the mind to those meaning anything, um, you know, yeah, it's all, I mean, I, th I've, I think it, it amazes me that the, the European education system had to work re a lot harder than the American education system to undo 
<laughs> the fact oh, that wow. you're surrounded by beautiful Christian art. Wow. But here's the thing, yeah. like, so because back when I was a, one of the pastors of the Asian American Christian Fellowship um, down in California, we we would have um, visiting students from Asia that were there to study music that would show up at church because they'd been learning Bach their whole lives and they wanted oh, no. to know and they oh, could no. see they'd show up and they'd say I want to know where this about Christianity because I've been studying and learning Bach my whole life and singing these Christian the or Handel you know singing these Christian songs where is the where are the Christians that are like Bach? <laughs> and you're like, I'm sorry to say, honey. Uh, uh, <laughs> but it's still, that's the root of, yeah. you, they still wanted to, they, they could see, I, I want to understand the truth that produces this kind of beauty. Because in reality, truth, beauty, and goodness are just three ways of evaluating. So they, they, in, in reality, they go together. We have to work really hard to pull them apart. Truth be so, to try and say something is beautiful that it doesn't have truth behind it or goodness behind it um, is you have to work pretty hard at that. So then, um, I I know we, we you got to run here soon. We got a short <laughs> day today, so I want to get into this. But I still got like forty five minutes. So I think we're good. okay. I know, but I, the question I'm gonna the question I'm gonna ask is gonna lead to three more questions. Gonna lead to three more questions, and we'll never get. And, and maybe I just need to ask him because Jason, you're making me feel like that we're not leaving anything beautiful in our current imaginative situ state that is going to reflect the gospel. Because that's is, so, because it seems like that's inescapable. Um, cause, so then I start wondering, so then what is it if we have, if we have the gospel? And I believe we do. There's no question about that. We right. understand that. Where is the breakdown from us creating the kind of cathedrals and things that we need to create in our imagination? Are they not all correctly fixed? I mean, this is something that uh, you see with uh, C.S. Lewis. He yeah. started seeing this breakdown. And this is what we've been talking about, I guess, in a lot of ways. Um, and this is why I'm trying to read Dante, which, by the way, it's this is hard for me. Man, I read all, <laughs> it I is read, it's hard stuff. I, I read law papers. And mm -hmm. not like I understand all of them. I read affidavits. I read theonomy document. I read all kinds of stuff. Reading Dante, I feel like I have I don't have the right vehicle. <laughs> you know, I'm like, yeah. I mean, with well, most law stuff, I can figure out, but Dante, I'm like, who, what? Well, a le legal and scientific writings, both, which are both important for in certain kind of situations. They are about making sure you're only saying one thing at a time. Mm. Right. And so, um, when you get a, um, a system of theology oh, that my is, goodness. I just got a, it. Right. So when you have a I system of theology it. that is more of a legal system than a, you uh, can't be saying multiple things at a time. Right. You have to always be saying, What's the one thing? What's the one thing? Set aside everything else. What's the what's the one thing? It can't have right? multiple meanings. Can't have multiple meanings. Meanings. Um and um you end up with a belief about the world that 
um, is makes it really hard, difficult to live in this world because it isn't like that. Right. And so you are either escapist. I'll fly away. Got to get out of here. You're retreatist. This world can't be reformed. It's too, it, it's too much. Sin's too powerful. Um, uh, or you, you basically become a fundamentalist, right? And say, well, only these things are important though, right? Um, because the world is a giant living, walking, poetic system. Um, it, you're living in, you broke oh, about, you said, I, only these I, things I, are important though. Right. Oh, so, um, so you retreat away from anything that's not part of the fundamentals. Essentials. Right? Essentials, yeah. And so, um, and anybody that tries to say, well, hey, let's talk about something non-essential, you have to basically un, uh, uh you have to push them away, undo them or. Okay, know, wait so, a second. Can I use myself as an example of what you're talking about sure. here? Yeah. So, um, when I became reformed, all I wanted to do was read theology. Like that was it. Like I didn't yeah. want if it didn't have an exegetical extent to it, there was no place for it inside of my reading categories whatsoever. And instead of somebody coming along and saying, Hey, let me introduce you to the conversation that God has been having throughout history, along with right? So not using this as scripture, don't understand that. Understand the fact that there is you have God's divine words in history. Is God telling the story of how he's been working? This is why we get common law. This is why it's so hard for us to embrace common law. Right. Because it's not essential. It is one of those things that Dave Fowler is probably flipping out, clapping and dancing right now. Um, I love that guy. Um, if nobody else listens to this podcast but Dave Fowler, I, I just, I'll be happy with myself. Uh, but that's, but that's why some of the problems that we're having with embracing things like common law is because it's not an essential thing that is there's no exegesis to it. There's no, it's just, you know, yeah. um, it's just there. It's been happening throughout history, but it doesn't have any value at the end of the day. But of course it does just like American literature. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and it is a, um, it's a belief about real. It's, it's, or it's a claim about reality to say these, here's the essentials and it's all, that's all that's important. Right. Because God didn't only give us essentials. I mean, you just look at, um, something like the, uh, you know, he, he, vegetables, right? He could have just grown one single vegetable that is the, all of the things that we need in it, but he didn't, right? He decided that he wanted us to figure out how to make all different kinds of salads with all different kinds of vegetables. Right. That was his idea to fill the world with all the different sights, sounds, colors, tastes. Um, and there are things that when you're young, uh, you don't, you, you, you know, young palates are like, ooh, onions. You know, I don't want that. But then as you grow and you get older, there's a Mature. historical element even to taste buds and the way those work. Um, and, and so I think there's this, the the world that God created is this um, living art piece, <laughs> and and we say, well, 
I just want to get down to the essential ideas. Blue, green, um, red, orange. He used those colors. Yeah. Those are nice. All right. Because, yeah. so Jason, so then, because of the, the reason is, is we talked about this before another show, and this is really helping me here. It's going to take all of that to point to something. It's going to take all that to point to the internality, the beauty of God at the end of the day. It's going to take all those different seasonings. It's going to take those different vegetables. It's going to take those different flavors. It's going to take those different sugars. It's going to take all of that to communicate something about who God is. Right. Right. Because he said, here's the image of God. Right. Adam and Eve are the the um, Adam is the image of God. Eve is the image of God. Adam and Eve together are the image of God. Um, and then the human race as a whole, all throughout history, is the image of God, because God is eternal, infinite, all knowing, all wise, all of these things that he's that God is trying to image into the world. Or not God is trying. God is imaging into the world through us. But me, as my, I, I am fully and completely the image of God, but there's not enough of me or enough time in my life to display God, right? It takes the entire human race to do that. Um, and so it, it takes the entire human race over the entire course of history to do that. And we won't even finish, right? So it's an eternal, um, <laughs> process right? so <laughs> the image of god um we always are trying to uh get it down to its essence what is the essential things that make us into the image of god rather than saying oh my gosh all this is the image of god <laughs> this is this is what it takes so piling on all of the different things uh, about humanity is a way of saying okay there's more to learn about God over here, more to learn about God. You d you don't exhaust your knowledge of God ever. Um, and even throughout all eternity, no one will exhaust the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God is infinite and we're finite. And so all of eternity is going to be the process of us continuing to learn uh, about who God is and so that we can glorify him better and better and better. We can worship him more fully, more truly, better and better. Uh, and that's what the spirit is doing in history. He is building a bride to worship, uh, you know, building a bride, building a nation, building a community, building a, a race of people uh, that can worship God into eternity. And we have a tendency to say, I just got I want to get it. I want to boil it down. Let's just boil it down. <laughs> and then so, we don't produce art because art is is not about boiling it down. Art is about putting on to dis display the connections. Okay, so we can keep going down this art road because now I want to know. So so then help me. This, let's do this because I think that when I hear Christian artists, artists when I hear Christian artists um, or anybody who's an artist, they seem to be disconnected from a robust theological foundation most of them are ignorant right like they just don't have it and so you have this art that you're like there is no theology there at all right it's just dumb in so the how, modern present yeah yes yes, yes. like with yeah. dante this is he's on some other stuff so this is basically how, the most mo the most educated person of his day and his goal was to be a politician that really blessed his city he and failed he at got, that, though, didn't he? <laughs> he got well. He got exiled. 
Ah. Right. He got exiled. And so he and he was a poet and he was writing poetry, but he his poetry didn't it really took on the spiritual character that it has because of his exile, because he came to realize I was thinking too small by saying, "Okay, God, what can I do for Florence? Um, Really, I should be saying, "Okay, Lord, what have you got me to do? What what am I here to do for the? for your people as a whole, for the human race in the world. And so God, but God had to get him into exile to change his, to, to widen his vision. Same thing happened to John Milton who wrote paradise lost, probably the greatest uh, uh, epic in English. Um, Although Beowulf is up there too, but John Milton, he had to go blind before he could become somebody that could see well enough to be able to write paradise lost. So, um, God has this way of squeezing, um, squeezing out of us the small visions that we have, uh, in order to get us to the place that he wants us, which is to think kingdom. Um, okay. So I don't want to interrupt. That's a good line to think kingdom. What? Just to to think to think in terms of how do I how do I benefit the king, um, mm. benefit the the king, expand his kingdom, um, serve him well, in whatever situation he puts us in, right? I mean, very few people end up a Dante, a Milton, a world former, a world turner, somebody that actually says causes the world to turn a little bit more to the right to stay on the path, you know, or to get back on the path. Well, see, that's the thing. This is something that's been hitting me, Jason, is that I have seven souls that I lord mm-hmm. over in my house. I got seven worlds to inspire to think magnificently about God's world. Right. Um, and so th- that is – my responsibility, my obligation uh, that God has given me in the way that I love my neighbor is making children, giving children the type of education that sees the world in the true biblical imagination that they can help transform in whatever they do, right? Uh, uh, and so that they can impact the world that way. So in one sense, like, yeah, you're right. You, we don't get to I'm not probably going to be a Dante ever, but the way that I get to affect these seven folks, eight, including my wife, um, has that kind of world impact ultimately. It and does. if we all c- kind of come together around that and we look at our world or our universe in our homes, um, there isn't a more important, impactful place to be. And that's why this is so important. To me. Okay, so I want to jump into it because here's the deal. So, Dante, were you going to say something about that? I don't want to uh, well, just just that, and at the heart of it is teaching your kids to embrace the world God made with joy, right? Because the joy of the Lord is our strength, and um, if an education doesn't doesn't lead to wisdom, which is the ability to live well in the world God made, right? To embrace the world the way God made it, enjoy it, and and um, you'll leave it better than you found it, then. Uh, there's there's very little strength um that it 
it, if you don't have joy, there's very little strength left, right? That's the heart of the strength of the church of Christians. So I'm having a problem trying to read through Dante and understand it. <laughs> and so then I feel like that I am exactly the person you're talking about who has this imagination that is not been transformed. Do not be conformed to this world, brother, but be transformed by the transformed, renewal. Transformed, yeah. Right. And, um, and so as I'm reading through Dante, and I'm, I told you, I finished the introduction and that was like, uh, it was work. And Canto, Canto? Canto one, yeah. We're- I'm at Canto three, actually. I told you two, but I was actually three and I read Canto <laughs> three. And you know, here's what's weird. I've learned with some books that I don't understand. I've learned to keep reading until mm-hmm. I feel and I struggle and I wrestle with the author until I understand the author. And somewhere in Canto three, I felt like I was with the author. And so I wanted yeah. to go back and start reading the author again. Um, but I don't, you're telling me that the more that I understand Dante, the better that I understand the type of world that we live in. How, how, okay. Let's just Canto two. Can okay. you break, can you break that yeah. down? Like, how yep. is this transformative to my imagination? <laughs> you know, um, and I get nobody. Everybody's like, "What? I haven't read Dante. You guys didn't tell me we're reading Dante." Um, yeah, surprise. Well, the there's a there's it's a really you you have maybe, to assume reading can, Dante. Let me, yeah, go ahead. Let, let me say this real quick. Um, and maybe you can help me with. And we have conversations. We've had conversations, but more help with thinking poetically. Because there is another muscle that's not working there in order to be able to read Dante. I don't, I feel like I'm in a different car, right? Um, so I can see one thing and I'm like, is he talking about this? And it's like, well, you need to have broader, which is why I get the beginner's guide to Dante, Divine Comedy by Jason Baxter was, is helpful. It's really helpful. helpful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Um, so one, cause what Dante does so well is he pulls to, pulls things together. And um, and shows the similarities between things. Um, and that's where a lot of the wisdom of what Dante brings is 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 teaching us to see um, the patterns, teaching us to see the patterns that um, are a part of the way God has built the world. Right. See mm, the patterns okay. and similarities, um, because uh, in in Dante's understanding and really in that um, medieval Christian understanding, the world is, um, is a work of art. And so uh, it's, and art is a way of putting on display the truth through the beauty and the goodness of the truth mm. or putting on display goodness through the beauty and the truth of uh, of goodness, right? So pulling together, um, pulling into the conversation truth via beauty or goodness, pulling into the conversation goodness through beauty and truth, right? So trying to show um, how to, and in that way, it forms our desires towards what's good. Uh, it forms our desires towards truth because it shows that it's beautiful. This is, I mean, advertisers get this and they use it against us all the time. Right, you put beautiful people um, sitting around drinking Bud Light, and you think, "Ah, uh-huh, Bud Light must be good." Right? Mm-hmm. No, it's not. Bud Light is 
terrible it's like bad water um it's it's, it's water if if water could spoil <laughs> it's it's not even good beer right but they the advertisers get that um beautiful people sitting around holding it is a is an argument right it's an argument um that it that what you have is something good um but what dante is doing and what the what the poets throughout history that hang around and continue to resonate are um those are the ones that actually pulled real truth and goodness together and showed that it's beautiful and um here the thing in chapter or in canto 2 that he's after is courage mm. right he's he wants to put on display the beauty of courage so that's um and so day was departing and the dusk drew on loosing from labor every living thing save me in all the world i i alone must gird me to the wars rough traveling and pity's sharp assault upon the heart which memory shall record unfaltering now muses now high genius do your part so he says sun's going down it's good friday he's been walking all day good friday because Kanto one set you up that it's good Friday and he's found finds himself in the middle of his life on a deep dark wood and um, Virgil comes and says come this way I'm going to show you the entrance to your journey um, and so they've been walking all day because now it's dusk and um, he's saying I'm trying to gird myself up for this battle but it's rough travel this rough traveling is making it hard for me mm-hmm. um, and but he says, now muses, now high genius, do your part. So um, this is a an old way of calling upon. So the muses were um, in in old mythology. The muses were the ones that inspired the different arts. And so he says, what do I need? I need encouragement. I need to be shown the beauty of keeping courage because mm. right? I'm losing courage. And so he calls upon the muses. Uh, and the high genius, and we've talked a little bit about the word genius. He is, the, that word is in the middle of changing its meaning. So that's why it, in this translation, it's still capitalized because it's a proper noun. Um, but he's com- taking the genius and the muses and pushing them together. Uh, so that there is, he, he needs help beyond himself. Um, what is that? Remind me of genius again. Like, so genius. Um, so in the ancient world, the uh, the genius was the spiritual being that was behind the power that the, the civil Oh, right. Power, like a genie. Yeah. Right? Like, so a, like genie. a genie. Yeah. yeah. Right. That. Right. Um, we talked about that. But in now, the lunar stuff. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but he's, but he is saying um, that it's not. So what he does is he says uh, the muses and the genius um, can speak poetically now through me or show me something poetic so that my courage returns because he's losing mm. his courage. Um, he, he's, he know he he's going into a spiritual battle, but he's beginning to lose courage already. Um, but he, and, but the fact that he says, hi, genius come to me when he doesn't have any political authority shows mm. that shifting understanding of the political authorities as a completely different kind of, person right higher on the chain of being well the genius can come to anyone it doesn't just come you know that that um it doesn't just come to the authorities and the powers and but what does it do well it shows us uh the beauty of of real of 
goodness so that I will, so he will want to do it. And he says, and memory come to me, faithful scrivener, which means, you know, author, writer to the eyes here, show thy virtue, virtue, noble as thou art. So he says, I need some stories from the past. I need to remember, um, remember what God has done in the past. Remember stories from the past. I need power, poetic power to see the beauty of keeping courage. Mm. Um, and, and I soon began poet, dear guide, twere wise, surely detest my powers and weigh their worth ere trusting me to this great enterprise. Right. So he says, Virgil, Virgil's the poet, his guide. Mm. He says, okay, I get it. You're testing me before you send me on this great mission. Um, he's thou sayest the author of young Silvius's birth, uh, did to the world immortal mortal go clothed in the body of flesh he wore on earth. So he says, okay, I, I'm, I'm remembering your poem. So now he's referencing Virgil's poem, the, right. uh, the Aeneid Aeneas, um, went into hell in the sixth book. I think cause it's a 12, there's 12 books in the Aeneid, the sixth book right in the middle. Aeneas goes into hell and visits with his father who, has died and um because he has lost his mission he was on a mission he was sent to go found rome um when troy fell and he's off and he gets distracted from his mission and he's told go over here go down into hell and you'll be reminded of your mission and so he goes down into hades to see his father um but he went in his body right most people go into hades by dying but he went clothed in the flesh he wore on earth Granted, if hell's great foeman deigned to show to him such favor, seeing the vast effect and what and who his destined issue, no, that needs surprise no thoughtful intellect. Since to Rome's fostering city and empery, or the founding of the, of the empire, high heaven had sealed him as the father elect. Right. So he had lost his mission that he was the he was he was the one that heaven had sealed him had elected him, had chosen him to go be the father of the empire of Rome, be the first emperor of Rome. Um, but he, but he had forgotten it. And so he was sent to hell to be reminded of the mission that he was supposed to be on, that heaven had sent him on. Right. Mm -hmm. Dante is saying, okay, wait, I'm think I'm getting it. You Virgil, uh... you've come to lead me to put me back on the mission that I've forgotten in the middle of his life, Virgil comes to him in a dark wood. And, and this is all a fantasy story um, in or, a, until the third book becomes a science fiction story, but it's a, it's, it's science, it's fantasy science fiction. But he says, why is it that Virgil would come to me? Well, I can see in the poem that Virgil wrote the shape that God must be using with me. Mm. Why? So now remember, he has been exiled. He in the, his real life, he's going through the hell of exile. He's he has been sent away. And so he's reflecting on it. How is my story? How does my story fit into the story of humanity? Right? That's a poetic question. Mm. How does my exile? How can my exile become a benefit to the rest of humanity? If I can figure out the pattern and communicate beautifully the pattern that God has used in me. But that's going to mean I have to take courage 
and war, this spiritual warfare, through my exile. And so he's poetically trying to understand his own story and communicate the beauty of it so that he can then be a benefit to other people, that his life can benefit other people. He's he's realized that he has, that God is whacking him in the side of his head with this exile to get him back on the mission the same way Aeneas went through hell to get back on the mission to found Rome. Um, and, and he said, this shouldn't surprise it shouldn't surprise anyone that thinks, you know, it, um, he said it should be no surprise to thoughtful intellect. He says, yeah. but both these were there established verily to found that place holy and dedicate wherein great Peter's heir should hold his see. Right. So he says, because even Aeneas founding Rome was a part of God's plan. Mm. Because eventually, Peter would become the bishop of Rome, right? So when you look at the history of Rome, even the pagan part of Rome was a part of God's plan to build a, a city and an empire through which the gospel could then spread to the world. So no matter what Aeneas thought he was doing it for, God had a plan for the founding of Rome so that the deed thy verses celebrate taught him the road to victory and bestowed the papal mantle in its high estate. Right. So Aeneas travels from Troy to found Rome. He has to go through this process of going through hell to be reminded that heaven has sent him on a mission. And um, the way that he's reminded is he, uh, he goes down, he sees his father. His father says to him, remember what you were called to do? You keep getting distracted. Let me show you the future, right? He So he shows him, he gives him a vision of what Rome will become. And then that pushes him back onto his mission. So it's mm. a backward facing and a forward facing uh, imagination that can actually accomplish the mission that that is given to him um and he says thither thither or to there the chosen vessel in like mode went afterwards and much confirmed thereby the faith that sets us on salvation's road um so he says the the same way um that virgil set up a shape for the life of aeneas actually turns out to be something that we as Christians go through. Um, and, and remembering that keeps us on the road, the road that God has us for, right? Remembering that if we, ha if God sends us in exile, puts us through something that feels hellish, it's because he is trying to keep us on the road or put us on the road or press us back into the mission that he has for us. But then he says, but how should I go there? Who says so? Why? I'm not Aeneas. He says, I am not Paul, <laughs> which is a really interesting mm -hmm. thing to say, except for, what is it, Second Corinthians 12, where Paul tells us about the time he visited the third heavens. Yeah. Um, right. So right, he's, right. Yeah. So he says, I'm not Aeneas. I'm not Paul. Um, who thinks me fit? Not others. Not I. He says, why <laughs> would I be the one? Right? Why, why me, would, Lord? <laughs> why me, Lord? Right. Yeah. Um, 
uh, he says, say I submit and go. Suppose I fall into some folly, though I speak but ill, thy better wisdom will construe it all. Right? He says, what if I go and fail? So, and as one who wills, and then, un- so then that's the end of his speech to, you, you know, you can see the punctuation shows that it's the end of his speech to Virgil. So, and then he says, as one who wills and then unwills his will, changing his mind with every changing whim, till all his best intentions, intentions come to nil. So I stood havering in that moorland dim, while through fond rifts of fancy oozed away the first quick zest that filled me to the brim. Now, havering, if you've ever heard the song, I will walk 10,000 miles, I, I would walk 10,000 more. 10, yeah. <laughs> That's the only other place I've ever heard the word havering is in that song. It's just so, yeah, um, and it, 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 um, and it just, it just means, well, you should, that, that's a good one to go look up, right? You see a word and you say, I don't know what havering is. You can go look it up. Um, uh, and so at uh, the first quick zest that filled me to the brim. Um, so he says, I was really excited at the beginning of the day, but now I've been walking in a dark wood all day long. The sun's going down. He says, and I just, I'm, my zeal is starting to fade. That's his, that's his, uh, interpretation of what's going on. And this is what makes Dante so great. He says, if I have grasped what thou, this is now Virgil responds. If I have grasped what thou dost seem to say, the shade of greatness answered, these doubts breed from sheer black cowardice. Mm. Virgil says, you're lying to yourself. Straight to his face. You're lying to yourself. Mm. It sounded really great when he says, who am I, Lord? I don't think I'm <laughs> not the humble. right one. Right, it sounds humble. Oh. And Virgil just says, you're lying to yourself. Um, uh, so, uh, <laughs> uh, I, and th- so for a long time, uh, these doubts breed from sheer black cowardice. I had, um, printed out and hanging on my wall, right? That, uh, because the, there's so many ways that we want to say, um, oh, I don't know, Lord, I want to be humble. I don't want to be prideful, but it's actually a cover for cowardice, right? We're actually trying to cover the fact that we're just being cowards. Now, the way I hate you right now, right? But the way that he sets sets you up for that stab between the ribs um, is you're nodding along with Dante. Right? You understand Dante. You, you understand. feel Dante. I've said that stuff. I, I can see like, okay, I get it. And Virgil looks at him and be like, and just says, you're being a coward, right? But that's what's, yeah. that's what we're really dealing with. You don't want to, to, to tackle the hard work, um, the, huh? the hard work uh, of your own spiritual life. You don't want to tackle the hard work of of uh, of digging Ugh. in and and letting uh, letting the spirit of God transform you, right? You don't want to you don't want to tackle it. And um and so he says, but but then he says the sheer black cowardice which day by day lays ambushes for men, checking the speed of honorable purpose in mid flight. As shapes half seen startle a shying steed, right? And so he says, 
the way that a horse jumps at a shadow, he says, that's what's going on. There's nothing real about, about your objections, right? You, you, um, but your, but you, the way that you're telling your own story right now is actually the thing getting in the way of you being able to just do the mission that God has put before you. It's beautiful. So then he says, I don't like Dante <laughs> to rid thee of this foolish fright. Hear why I came and learn whose eloquence urged me to take compassion on thy plight. While I was with the spirits who dwell suspense, a lady summoned me to bless. So blessed, so rare. I begged her to command my diligence. Her eyes outshone the firmament by far as she began in her own gracious tongue, gentle and low as tongues of angels are. Oh, courteous Mantuan soul. Uh, Virgil was born in Mantua, whose skill in song keeps green on earth a, f a fame that shall not end while motion rolls the turning spheres along. A friend of mine, who is not fortune's friend, is hard beset upon the shadowy coast. Terrors and snares his fearful steps attend, driving him back. Yea, I, I fear almost I have risen too late to help, for I was told such news of him in heaven he's too far lost. But thou, go thou. Lift up thy voice of gold, try every needful means to find and reach and free him, that my heart may rest consoled. Beatrice am I, who thy good speed beseech, love that first moved me from the blissful place whither I'd fain return, now moves my speech. He says, you remember Beatrice? Now, Beatrice is dead at this point when Dante's yeah, writing yeah. this. Yeah. He says, you remember Beatrice? Do you remember the way God first called you to himself through the beauty of Beatrice. You know, she's up there in heaven, right? More beautiful than she ever was here on earth. You remember all that? Right. So he's called, he's asked memory to come to him to remind mm. him to, to go, uh, to, to continue on the path. And Virgil says, let me rem remind you of the first beauty that you remember that you know you couldn't have created. The first there has beauty to be a god. Which... Look at that woman. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> and so, um, so uh, uh, Virgil is reminding him of his first his first encounter with the Lord, which was through the beauty of Beatrice, and then um, and then uh, basically calling him on uh, to to leave his cowardice behind and be inspired back to a chivalrous mindset that says mm. charge, you know, th th that says, Oh, here comes the conflict charge. Mm. So, uh, St. Boniface does that. Beauty does, yeah, that. beauty does that. Right. St. Boniface says, um, listen for the roar of the lion. That's where the fight is won. When you hear the roar of the lion charge that direction. He's training mm. preachers, right? That's in his book to preachers, <laughs> right? Um, right? That uh, there's that there's a courage that's always needed, um, and that and that what is the thing? What it, one of the central things that God has given to the world to make men courageous is beauty. And when we want to turn away from beauty, deny the reality of beauty, say that beauty is in the eye of the beholder and is not a reality that we are experiencing. Um, we get men that aren't courageous anymore. How, how that's all we've been taught is abusing the eye of the beholder. 
uh, it doesn't have any objective stand right how, which how, is not how, actually so that's not actually what shakespeare meant when he wrote that in context but that's a that's a whole different thing because we are taught that beauty is something that i add through my mind uh-huh. through my interpretation uh-huh. it's not something that is objective that we experience um, that acts on us that acts on us right right and so we have purposefully um as a culture, we have dulled our senses to stop responding to beauty, right? Um, and in the church, what we've often said is beauty is lying to you. Beauty is lying to you, right? The world is a harsh, that the world is a harsh place. It's a, a dark place and beauty comes along and tries to tempt you away. But stay mm. strong, ignore all the beauty, follow Jesus instead, rather than saying, you know, we've actually got the best story. We've got the most beautiful savior. We have the most glorious Lord. We have the best covenant, the greatest law. We have, uh, the, the best way of, of, uh, building community, loving one another, the best music, the best art. The we best got the best man, the, the best, best women. Movies. We don't want to, we don't right. want to talk like that. We don't want to talk like that, do we? Right. We don't want to say we've got cowards. the best man. Oh, shut up. Because of the black cowardice. <laughs> yeah, it's dangerous reading Dante. But cause he messes with you. Yeah, but I needed, I needed, I read Dante. I didn't get that. So I, so now the thing that bothers me as we were going through this and you're working through this, like, I don't, I don't have the faculties to be able to read Dante yet. And so this might just become a whole show about reading Dante. <laughs> because I'm serious though. And once is because everything you just said here and, and reading this, I've I read th- through this, man, I, there's a, on YouTube, there is a video that has Dorothy Sayers version. The guy was really brilliant because he had little hand puppets to make it look like to get around the copyright. It's really brilliant. Uh, and so he does 10 minute versions of this where he goes through Canto 1, Canto 2, um, and Canto, and he goes through all of them. They're like 10 to 12 minutes. So I listened to this. I read this, but I wasn't able to poetically break all this down. You know, I wasn't able to break it down and have the understanding even to be able to get the, how do I get that? How do I? Start operating well, in small ways, being able to absorb that because I felt like now I was able to absorb that in a way because of the way you're breaking it down. I'm like, oh wow, yeah. I mean, I think I think one of the things that we've one of the great things that we have right now is there's a lot of resources out there. Um, I think we should try and talk to Jason Baxter. I think that'd be really fun. See if we can we can get him on. Pull him we've in, got- yeah. Um, Can we do this? Again? I know you got to run. Yeah, um, no, let's do let's let's do it again. Should we just do Canto three next? Yeah, I'm gonna read some Baxter too in this book, The Beginner's Guide to Dante's Divine Comedy. I, and yeah, I think so. I think let's keep going because I think we're going to connect metaphysics, cosmology, and um, Gnosticism all together in this. I think that yeah. all of that is going to connect in here because I'm looking at the things that's happened in the last year and saying, man, we were cowards. Yep. Right. We were cow- and why were we black cowards? cowardice and we're surrounded by it. Well, Dante, he's got a theory. He says it's because we've closed our eyes to the beauty that God has surrounded us with. So we don't think there's anything worth defending. And so 
we go limp. Until next time, I guess. <laughs> All right, so I need to. So I'm gonna read Canto three, and maybe give me some some parameters or something that can help me think through. Is it should I just use um Jason Baxter's to kind of go along with this so that I can kind of come more prepared with some questions even for myself and. Man, that was good, Jason. Doggone it, that was good. So would that be the best thing, the beginner's guide to Dante's Divine Comedy? I think with Jason so. Baxter? I mean, I'm really, okay. I'm reading through it right now and really, really benefiting from it a lot. So I mean, going between that, chapter? between that and the um, the medieval mind of C.S. Lewis, I think. Yeah, those those. You get, we again, got everything. Jason Baxter. Yep. Okay. I'll go through three. We'll start working through three, and I'm going to – because here's what I think you've done with this. Some people say, well, poetry, you, you can't ever lock anything down. It's not – you can't lock it in. That's the problem with poetry. Well, that locked it in pretty good, and I want to know how to do that. So I think the poetry is for grown folks. I guess I'm about to grow up. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good, man. Awesome. Go do your meeting, man. All right. That's fine. See you. I'll talk All to right, you later. We'll talk. All right. Yeah, sounds bye. good.